Well, it's Good Friday. And every year in the church, we tell a story. We tell the same story every year. And we're convinced that it's a great story. So I want to begin by reading the story for us and then talking about it and then talking about what happened and why we call it good. So I'm going to read now from the Gospel of Mark, the 15th chapter, verses 16 to 39. The words will be on the screen behind me. It says that the soldiers took Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed Jesus up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews. They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. After they had mocked him, they took, him, took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide that each man should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. So allow me a few minutes to review the story of the last week of Jesus' life for us before we talk about these events. Um, as you know, Jesus shows up on the scene. Uh, he begins preaching about the kingdom of God. It's near. Repent. He heals the sick, he exercises demons, he calls disciples, and he begins this ground-level ministry that swells throughout the Judean countryside. But in the process, he comes into conflict with, conflict with the religious establishment. There are power issues. Who gets to be in charge of religious Israel? You look a little different than we're expecting. Um, you might be this Messiah, but is the Messiah a conquering king? Uh, is he going to beat back the Romans, or is he something else? And you don't look like a kind of guy who's going to beat the Romans to me. 
And there are certain expectations about God. Who does God speak to? How does he speak? And do we have any control over these things? Because you seem to be rattling our sense of who's in control. In the last week of Jesus' life, he arrives in Jerusalem for the Passover, which is the great feast celebrating Israel's escape from slavery in Egypt. Escape from slavery is in the air. Remembrance and feasts and a meal involving lamb and bread and um, haste. He shows up in Jerusalem and he clears the temple. He tosses tables. He throws people out. He says, this is a house of prayer. You've made it a den of robbers. He's aggravating the establishment even more. He preaches provocative sermons while he's there. He says, uh, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they think, yeah, right, as if you could pull that off. And so the Jews in authority begin to conspire with the Romans to have Jesus done away with. So Thursday night of the week, what would have been last night, Jesus eats a final meal with his disciples. We call it the Last Supper. He tells them that the bread and the wine they're eating are his body and blood, and the disciples don't get it, and honestly, neither would you. It's weird words. Because Jesus is so popular, they've got to grab him at night. They can't grab him during the day because they're afraid of the crowds. And so they get some insider help. One of the 12 who's a little greedy is willing to trade Jesus' life for a pretty small price 30 pieces of silver. And so while he's in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, he's arrested and dragged before some kangaroo courts that are just there to condemn him. The judgment's determined before he arrives at the court. There's no fair trial at play here. And uh, they can't get Jesus to go along with what they want, so they send him over to Pilate, the Roman authority. And Pilate, who's kind of an efficient guy, just wants to clean his hands of the process. And so he kind of makes a deal with the crowd. The crowd's been stirred up. They're saying, give us some blood for the feast. It's a weird thing to cry. And he agrees to crucify Jesus. And so Jesus is condemned as a political prisoner. He's an insurrectionist. He's condemned to crucifixion, which was the favorite execution method for Roman Roman insurrectionists. Why is it favored? It's public. Everybody sees you die. Okay? It's shameful. We always put little cloths around people. Most people were crucified just naked. You have to be you're ashamed and, and exposed in front of people. And it's also incredibly cruel and painful. Um, you don't die from blood loss. Uh, you don't really die from shock. The reason you die is because you suffocate and give up. So it's pain that drives you into like a self-inflicted suicide. I can't hold up this any longer. It's just awful, awful way of killing. And the Romans liked it. Apparently, they crucified up to 500 people a day. They didn't have enough crosses or enough space. So the Romans thought, we'll just make a statement. And so Jesus, pretty unremarkably, one among many. Just another one. Let's get it done before the feast. And so he's crucified. And in the process, all of his disciples, except John, abandon him. All of his close friends bail. All the people he's invested in. And they're away. He's on the cross, we think, for about six hours, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. is the amount of time he's there. At 3 p.m., there's this supernatural darkness that comes over the land. Um, We don't know what's going on. It's not an eclipse because it's a full moon at Easter and Passover. Uh, Something supernatural is happening. He gives a loud cry, and he dies. He's taken, he's buried in a nearby rock tomb, and for all intents and purposes, the disciples who thought he was the Messiah and King are just staring in abject shock. 
that in such a rapid turnaround, their friend and their Lord and their master, not only have they abandoned him, but he's dead. So what do we do with this? Why is this good? Why is it good? It's a terrible story, and also terrible because it's so unremarkable in the ancient world. If Jesus is just a Jew, just any Jew, he's one among thousands who were crucified in the Roman uh, political machine. He doesn't mean anything. His death is as meaningless as the thousands of other deaths of the Roman world. So why is this one different, and what could possibly be good about the events of this particular Friday so many years ago? Um, We're going to have some scriptures up on the screen, a couple brief ones. Uh, We read some of these already, but let's look at these two briefly. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, is that he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Something's happened here. And then, of course, Isaiah 53.5 says, but he, um, he, Isaiah writing, not knowing who he was, he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. Somehow, the events of this particular crucifixion make things right between us and God. Somehow, Jesus' death on Good Friday makes a way for us to have relationship with God. And so for our time this morning, I just want to talk about that somehow. What's the somehow? Formally, we call this atonement theology. To atone is to make right. What's the theology we have for understanding how it is that Christ makes things right between us and between God? And I'm going to give you some metaphors for atonement theology today, but I want to say a word about good and bad atonement theology. Good atonement theology illuminates the event of Good Friday for us. It sheds light on it. It gives us perspective and helps us to understand parts of it. Bad atonement theology explains the events of Good Friday. There is something about what Christ has done that we could never fully capture in our words, in our phrases, in our metaphors. It's beyond our understanding. It's beyond comprehension. We can just get close to it. So bad theology wants to take the mystery away and say, I'll tell you exactly what happened. I'm not going to tell you that. I'm going to give you some metaphors. I'm going to give you four scriptural metaphors today. So you'll have some idea of illuminating what it is that's going on. So let's dip into these four metaphors. And I want to talk about these as scriptural metaphors, so you'll know that I'm not making these up. I didn't invent these metaphors. These are coming out of the Bible. And these have Old Testament as well as New Testament references. Uh, You don't have any notes today. Um, You've just got lots of scripture. So let's go through this together. Metaphor number one is sacrifice. The first metaphor for what happens is sacrifice. And the scripture we have is 1 John 4.10, which Dave preached on last week. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation. It's a big, scary word. It means um, atoning sacrifice. There's a Greek word, helasmus. It means a wiping away. Somehow what Jesus did wiped away our sin, as if the, the, you guys know how when you spray windows and glass and you've got the stuff on it, you take your cloth, and how satisfying it is to wipe it away and see clearly. That's the word we have here. 
And so there's something about blood sacrifice that is embedded in the ancient world, something about blood wiping away sin. And why is this? It's kind of weird. It's foreign to us. Here's another verse for us. It's Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11. And God, uh, through Moses, writing to the Israelites, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. So in the ancient world, and I don't think it's actually changed, but this is how it worked for most people in the world, innocent blood is required to make up for serious wrongs. Now, because we've done wrong, we deserve to die, but rather than kill you as you deserve it, we'll use this animal's blood as a surrogate for our own. And so let's just be clear that all animal sacrifice involves the symbolic surrogate replacement of the animal for you. Okay? There's an exchange going on. It's blood for blood, but it's not my blood, conveniently. Now, if you're feeling a bit bad for the poor animals, remember that animals are suitable for blood sacrifice precisely because they're morally innocent. It's their innocence that makes them suitable for this. It's not, it's not because they're useless, it's because they're pure. Unlike us, we're not morally pure, right? So our blood's no good in this respect. But pretty much everybody knew it was never enough because it had to be repeated. You kept getting things wrong. You kept having to have animal sacrifices. You kept have, there was just an endless cycle. And the author of Hebrews points this out, Hebrews 10, three and four. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible, he writes, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They can cover, they can patch, they can make a temporary way, but they can't actually deal with the problem because the problem keeps coming up, okay? You're dealing with the symptom and not the problem. And so in this sacrificial system, Christ appears on Good Friday as the last sacrifice, and there's a lot of pieces at play. I can't describe all of them. We're sinful, but Christ is not. And because Christ is perfect and morally blameless, without sin, he can offer his own blood as an offering that exceeds that of any animal. In fact, his self-sacrifice is so powerful that it has power to save the whole world. And it's in this way that Christ becomes a propitiation of one who wipes away our sins. His perfect blood wipes away our sinfulness once and for all. This is the first metaphor, the metaphor of sacrifice. Let's look at the second, because the second metaphor is one of economics or legal understandings of these things. Now, in this metaphor, Christ effects a kind of transaction where his blood operates as a currency to purchase us. Blood becomes a currency, and the currency is an exchange for us. Let me give you a couple of scriptures. Revelation verse, chapter 5 and verse 9, this is the song sung in heaven in glory of what Jesus has done. It says, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Purchased with your blood. There's a buying that Jesus did. He redeemed. Other scriptures also point to the fact that we're bought with a price, and the price was Christ's blood on the cross. Let me read for you Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of faith, this promise of the Spirit through him. The word redeemed is the word for purchased, and it's actually purchased as at a market. The word for market in Greek is actually in this word redeemed. 
So um, it's agora is tied in with this word. It's a thing you're doing publicly. And the image is, in this sense, that of a slave at market. And he's bound, he's chained to sin, and that Christ works in exchange, whereby in exchange for his blood, you get your chains released from your bondage to slavery. The metaphor is also deeply tied to the Old Testament, especially to its language of freeing slaves. Remember, the Old Testament is all about freeing slaves. The narrative in Exodus is one big story of a slave revolt, where an entire people rise up and leave. And then embedded in the Hebrew law were all sorts of protections for slaves, all sorts of liberation clauses. It's a huge part of the Old Testament narrative. And in light of that Bible context, for this legal and economic metaphor, atonement is the contract where Christ uses his life to purchase ours from our own insurmountable debt to sin. He buys your freedom on the cross. So there's an economic exchange. Third metaphor is that of punishment. So humans have sinned, we've sinned, both in Adam as a whole race, our race is messed up, individually as persons in our relationships to one another, we're all culpable, and sin results in a punishment of, excuse me, and we've sinned this way, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, says Paul, and sin has consequences, inevitable consequences to sin, and Paul writes in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin. You perform sin, you get a wage, you get a reward. Your reward is death, is what you reap from what you've sowed with this stuff. So sin results in punishment. Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden, and death is a form of exile as well. Exiled from life, they no longer have access to the tree of life, and neither do we. Sin results in a punishment of death, but at the cross, Christ takes upon himself the punishment that belong to us. So Christ dies so that we don't have to. This is what Paul was pointing to in 2 Corinthians 5.21. We read it earlier, but we'll read it again. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So this is an exchange. You've been found guilty. In fact, you are guilty. You've not been found guilty unfairly. You did it. And now the judge says, guilty. Here's the evidence, and you're like, yeah, I am guilty. And the judge says, here's your sentence. It's a, imagine it's a fine, or it's prison, or it's a physical punishment, or it's execution. Here's your punishment. And you've been found guilty. You're like, that's it. I've got to accept the punishment. And it comes to the moment of sentencing, and Jesus steps in the way and says, I'll take the punishment on his behalf. You think, well, I don't deserve that. And you don't. You don't. But he receives what was yours. He pays it on your behalf. It's like we all went to a restaurant and racked up the bill into thousands, and it came time for the reckoning, and we were like, we're going to have to make a run for it. And Jesus shows, shows up and says, I already paid it all. In fact, I bought the restaurant. It's extravagant. Now, this also is grounded in the Old Testament, and the prophet Isaiah speaks to God's mysterious plan to punish one person so that another can take his life. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 53, this time verses 4 through 6, and watch the transitions between what happens to the servant and what happens to us. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. 
and by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Some grand and mysterious exchange has been ordained by God where the, the perfect life of his son has the power to take upon himself the punishment that belongs to us. Again, I'm not trying to explain it, but to illuminate it. So the wages of our sin is death, and Christ, by dying, pays our bill for us. He receives the punishment that was our due, and we get life in exchange. It's amazing. So the fourth metaphor I want to point to this morning, the last one, is that of conquest. Is conquest. Now, in this metaphor, we recognize that Christ's willing death, his willed death, his chosen death, overcomes or conquers something. So what does it conquer? Well, first, Christ conquers, he overcomes precisely where we failed. So if you remember, we've talked about this in the past weeks, Adam and Eve had skirted obedience to God. They chose a temporary good over following God's command. And when Jesus was tempted by Satan, Satan reiterated this temptation. He offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world as a way to skirt the cross. Obedient, hard obedience to God are short, temporary rewards. And uh, Adam and Eve failed the test, and Jesus passes the test. And in choosing this radical obedience, Jesus effectively chose to die rather than compromise. And in choosing death, he conquers the temptation that brought us into our fall. Do you see how his choosing of death mirrors exactly where we fell? Hebrews uh, chapter 5 points this, points this out for us. Chapter 5, verses 7 to 10. Uh, the author writes, In the days of his Jesus' flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. So Jesus offers prayer to God who can save him from death, and he was heard. Was he saved? No. <laughs> he was heard. But he didn't get taken out of it. Although he was a son... He learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So Christ, in perfectly following the Father's will, conquers our disobedience. His perfect will, his surrendered will, rights the wrong of our disobedience. It conquers where we failed. And by living a perfect life, by following God perfectly, and by dying according to God's plan, he eviscerates the power of Satan. He destroys that power. The cross in this respect is an image of pure victory over the power of the evil one. So four metaphors. Sacrifice, economic purchase, punishment, and conquest. Which one's best? You know the answer. All of them. They're all the best. Each one is scriptural. Each one comes from the Old and New Testaments alike. Each illuminates the mystery of Christ's work on Good Friday, and none can replace or supplant the others. So one last thing before I tie us up is to say that Jesus knew what he was doing. It wasn't an accident. He didn't slip into the cross. Oops. It wasn't an after the fact, like, this is going to happen, but I'll explain it later. In fact, before this all happens, he says in John 10, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. You're going to look at this and think the Romans killed me. Yeah, maybe. 
I did this of my own accord so that you could have life. And the gift is insurmountable or ineffable is the word I wanted. So what ultimately makes this Friday good? Because today, this morning, we remember the fact that our sin, our brokenness, our failings, these things have broken our relationship with God. But on that day, many years ago, Christ made a way where there was no way. He made it through his physical body, which he had transformed into a willing sacrifice, and then he used it to purchase us. He received a punishment on our behalf and through which he conquered both death and the evil one. In Christ, judgment for sin passes over us, giving us new life. And that is the greatest news of all. So we have a time now to meditate on the work of Christ, a time of prayer, and I'm going to invite our pastor Anne to come forward. She's going to lead us in a time of reflection and prayer um, as we sit with the work that Christ has done on our behalf. So as Jeremy said, we're going to take the remainder of the service to be still and to be silent and to quietly reflect on Christ's willingness to go to the cross for each one of us. We're going to make space to personally engage with the impact of this reality and for what the Spirit wants to say to each one of us today in this moment. So I'm going to read four different scriptures. And after each one, there's going to be a time of silence to meditate on the scripture to listen to what the Holy Spirit wants to say to you and to pray um, your own prayer in response. And as I read the scripture, I'm going to invite you to close your eyes and let the words kind of wash over you. And then afterwards, the words will be up on the screen if you want to reread or to use that as you meditate and ponder. Following the last scripture, um, we're going to just have, an again, uh, continue with a time of quiet. But when you're ready... On, after the fourth scripture, you leave the sanctuary when you um, feel moved to, but I would invite you to do so silently so that we hold the sacredness of this moment. So there'll be four scriptures followed by times of silence, and then after the fourth one, please just leave um, in your own timing. So let's pause before I read the first scripture to still ourselves, and I invite you to ask the Spirit to guide you in your reflections and your prayers this morning. To Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. 
Holy Spirit, where are you leading us to hear your voice in this scripture? Psalm 51, 1-10 Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you're right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Holy Spirit, where are you leading us to hear your voice in this scripture? Philippians 2, 5-11 In your relationships with one another, 
have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Holy Spirit, where are you leading us to hear your voice in this scripture? As we close with these verses from Lamentations 3, 21 to 16, I just invite you to leave in silence. You sat with the verses for a moment, carrying the solemnity and the hope of this day with you. Lamentations 3, 21 to 26, yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord.